Bible. Hey, one other quick communication for you before we dive into the Word today. Uh, if you've been around at Crosspoint for a while, you already know this, but if you are new or newer, then this is new information, okay? Um, every year, our elders here at Crosspoint are gracious enough to allow me to take an extended preaching break in the summer. And so I use part of this break to get away with my family, to rest. We always do our family vacation during this time. And then I use the rest of the break to visit some other churches, to meet with pastors, to read some books. I do some prayer retreat days, and I really seek the Lord concerning the future of our church. And so I'm sharing this with you now because this break is going to come up in just a couple weeks, okay? Uh, I'm taking off the last two Sundays in June, the 23rd and the 30th, and then the first two Sundays in July, the 7th and the 14th. And then I'll be back in the house on July 21st. But while I'm gone, we're doing something different than we've done in previous years. All right, instead of bringing in guest speakers from the outside, we're going to continue on in our study on the book of Genesis, and two of our pastors on staff are going to preach. Okay, Zach Morgan, who was just up here a moment ago, our Cartersville campus pastor, he'll preach three out of the four Sundays while I'm away. And then the other Sunday, Jason Cribb, our Adairsville campus pastor, who's getting all ready to plant that church later this year up in the north part of our county. Uh, He'll preach the other Sunday, okay? And so my encouragement and my challenge to you is this. Be here, okay? Like, don't don't skip, for real. Like, don't not be here because I'm not here, all right? Uh, Be here. Be here for the sake of your own soul because the reality is we all need this, don't we? You're going to be at church here, and I'm going to be in church somewhere else. Like, I I need it too. So just be here for the sake of your own soul, but also be here to support Zach and Chasen. I think it's really important as a church family that we do that. This has never been about James. It's always been about Jesus, and so it doesn't matter who's preaching. Just get here, okay, and sit under the teaching of the Word. But I know God's going to use them in great and incredible ways to encourage all of you while I'm gone, all right? Uh, The last thing I would just ask is that you pray for me. I would really uh, covet your prayers just that I could get some good rest, some really good quality with my uh, quality time with my girls, and that also I could hear from the Lord clearly concerning the future of Crosspoint, okay? And we'll keep you posted along the way. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're continuing on in Genesis today, and we're going to close out Genesis 29 and start in on Genesis 30. So Genesis chapters 29 and 30. And as you're finding your way there, I want to start with a question. And please be honest with yourself. Here it is. What in life are you most desperate for? What in life are you most desperate for? Or in other words, what is that thing currently that you are seeking over and above all else? I would imagine if we're being honest, we would probably list off things like money, success, power, pleasure, comfort, security, praise, admiration, a relationship of some sort, right? The list goes on and on. Now, here's my next question. Have you ever stopped to consider why you're so desperate for that thing? And why you're even willing at times to sacrifice really, really important things to get it? Okay, I think the answer is really simple. You may not agree with me on this, but I'll at least share with you what I think, okay? Um, I think it's because deep down, you believe that if you get that thing you're after, you'll finally be satisfied, Right, if you can just obtain that thing that you're desperate for, that you'll finally have some peace and contentment in life. But the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. And again, you're smart people, so you get this, but I think we need to at least acknowledge it. The proof of that truth is found in the fact that the more of that thing you get, the more of that thing you want. Have you noticed this? 
Like you go from broke to making a whole lot of money only to realize there's more money to be made. Or you climb the ladder of success to the height you have always dreamed of only to look up and realize, well, dang, there are rungs above my head and people are standing on them. Or how about this? You finally buy that new thing, shiny thing that you've always obsessed over, and then two weeks later they come out with a new version. It's frustrating, isn't it? But again, it's like this vicious cycle. You set your sights on something, and you think it's going to satisfy, so you pursue it, and you get it, and it satisfies for a season until you realize there's more to be had. And that more creates in you dissatisfaction, and that you are left feeling desperate all over again. And that is very similar to what we see playing out in our passage for today. Over the last several weeks, if you've been here, you know this, but we've been studying the life of a man named Jacob. Okay, Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was the grandson of Abraham. And he was the possessor of all the promises God gave to his granddad. Promises to bless him, to make his name great, to make him the father of a great nation, to bless all the families of the earth through his descendants, even to give his descendants land to live in. Yet, as we've seen, instead of waiting patiently on those promises to come to him, Jacob deceived both his dad and his brother to obtain them. And so at this point in the story, our boy Jacob is on the run, okay? He has fled the land of promise because his older brother Esau is trying to murder him, and he's traveled all the way back to the land of his ancestors, all in hopes of finding a wife. And when he enters that land, God providentially guides him to his uncle, whose name was Laban, and Jacob makes a deal. He's always wheeling and dealing. You know, this was who he was. He was a schemer, a manipulator, a bit of a punk. And so he says to Laban, hey, uncle, here's a proposal. If I stay and serve you for the next seven years, I think you should give me your youngest daughter, Rachel, in marriage. And Laban seems to agree until it's time to follow through. Okay, seven years go by. And like on the, you know, 365th day of that seven year, I just imagine Jacob comes and he goes, all right, bro, want my wife. And so Laban throws this big wedding feast, and instead of giving Rachel, who was the younger, attractive daughter, according to the Bible, he gives Leah to Jacob, the older, unattractive daughter, according to the Bible. I just want you to know the Bible says that. I'm not saying that, okay? So don't be mad at me, okay? (laughs) Now, how Laban pulled that whole thing off, we have no idea. But somehow he did, and Jacob doesn't realize what's happened to him until the morning after his wedding night, right? Rolls over and looks, and there's Leah. And so he runs out, finds Laban, confronts him, and realizes very quickly, there is nothing that I can do to undo this. And this is when Laban makes his deal, his proposal. He says, Jacob, I'll tell you what, if you want to stay and serve me another seven years, I'll give you Rachel to be your second wife also. And so this is where we pick it up in the story, okay? In Genesis 29 and 30, we find two sisters who are married to the same man. Can you imagine that? And they're both desperate, very desperate for very different things. Leah, the older daughter, she just wants her husband to love her. Rachel, the younger daughter, she is desperate to have children. And their desperation creates rivalry and dissension and competition between them And as a result of their chasing after satisfaction in all the wrong ways, what we find in Genesis is yet another really strange story. Have you guys noticed how full of strange stories this book really is? A lot of weird stuff in here, and don't you worry, there is more to come, all right? But but this particular story looks like something that you'd see on a reality TV show. Can anybody remember that old school show from back in the day, Jerry Springer? 
Okay, look, if Jerry Springer was around at this time in history, this family would have been on it, okay? Like nobody's doing their family devotions tonight out of Genesis 29 and 30. But what I find so incredible is that God in grace shows up in the midst of their chaos and their dysfunction, and he goes to work in a very clear and compassionate way. Let me show you. Genesis 29, we're going to pick it up in verse 31. The Bible says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, I love this, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. We'll stop there and talk, okay? So in verse 31, uh, we realize quickly that like Sarah, who was married to Abraham, and like Rebecca, who was married to Isaac, Rachel, who's married to Jacob, is barren. This is a woman who is incapable of having children which is really interesting if you stop and think about it, okay? Here's the God of the universe working to build a nation of people for himself, yet he keeps choosing barren, barren women, which is just like God, right? Like when God wants to do something significant in our world, he oftentimes isn't going out and finding the most capable people. No, he goes out and finds incapable people, and then he gifts them and empowers them to do what they can't do on their own, all so that he gets the glory and the praise for what's been accomplished. And so I would just say to you today, to comfort you and put you at ease, um, if you're someone in the room who feels like you're incapable of doing something you know God wants you to do, that's great. It's awesome. Like, you are in a perfect position to be used by God. Now, we also learn from verse 31, Rachel's barren, in addition, that when God saw that Leah was hated. And the idea there is just that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. This was a woman who had been forgotten, who had been rejected, who had been cast out in a sense. When the Lord saw that, he showed up in her life in a very compassionate way, and he opened her womb. And this woman goes on to have four sons in rapid succession. And her hope after the first three sons was this, maybe my husband will finally love me. And that hope shows up in the names that she gives them. Reuben means the Lord has seen my affliction. Okay, God gave me a son because he's seen what I'm going through and maybe this is going to help Jacob to love me. Simeon, that name means the Lord has heard. Okay, the Lord has heard that I've been rejected and forgotten, that I'm unloved. And maybe he gave me a second son so that my husband will finally love me. And then Levi comes along. Levi means attachment. And Leah's going, okay, this time this has to work. Maybe my husband will finally attach himself to me because I've borne him three sons. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. After three kids, Jacob still loved Rachel more than Leah. And so she gives birth to a fourth son, and she names him Judah, which in the Hebrew means praise. And I love this. Here's this woman, this forgotten, rejected woman in this moment deciding, okay, I don't care what my husband does, if he continues to reject or if he chooses to love, I'm going to praise the Lord for how he's blessed me. And what I love so much about this is that Leah didn't even realize how blessed she was just yet. 
You see, two of her sons would go on to father the two most significant tribes in all of Israel, the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. Okay, the tribe of Levi, this was the priestly tribe. Uh, This was the tribe from which the Levitical priesthood was formed. These men were the mediators between God and the rest of his people. Men who came from this tribe were guys like Moses and Aaron. Then you have the tribe of Judah, which was the kingly tribe. When you go back and you study the history of the nation of Israel, you find King David conquering the city of Jerusalem. He sets up his his throne there. And starting with King David, the greatest king Israel has ever known, every king that reigned in the city of Jerusalem came from the tribe of Judah. But most significantly, listen to this, most significantly, Jesus Christ himself, the king of heaven and earth, came from the tribe of Judah. This is what God did very compassionately for this very desperate woman. And what this reminds us of is this, that God deals kindly with desperate people. That God deals kindly with desperate people. This is a truth, look, that we see all throughout the scriptures, right? Cover to cover. It's a truth that we've seen many times here in the book of Genesis, that we have a God who cares deeply about rejected, unloved, forgotten people. But the greatest proof of this truth is found in Jesus Christ himself. I mean, come on, if you know your Bibles, you know this, but when you get to the Gospels, who do you find Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hanging out with? It wasn't the righteous people, it was the rejected people. In fact, one of my favorite stories from the book of Mark, it it puts this on clear display, okay? Jesus is hanging out one night, Um, he throws a party for a bunch of messed up people, just eating dinner with some sinners, And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, show up, uninvited, mind you. And they pull his disciples aside and they say, hey, why is he eating with them? And I love it. Jesus doesn't allow his disciples to speak for him. He says to the Pharisees, fellas, you just need to know, I didn't leave heaven and come to earth for people who have it all together. I didn't come for people who are well. I came for people who are sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And ultimately, it's sinners like us that Jesus gave his life for. Okay, think about this with me. When we were most desperate, spiritually dead, stuck in sin, enemies of God, under wrath and judgment, Jesus dealt kindly with us. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to show us compassion. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh... He gave his life for us in our place for our sins to buy us back to God and to save us out of sin, death, and hell forever. And not only has he done that, but he has blessed us in ways that we simply cannot comprehend and will never deserve. Look, I say all that to say this. If you're someone in the room today who feels unloved, rejected, cast out, or forgotten, I just need you to know God feels differently about you than all those other people do. God doesn't feel that way about you. No, God sees you, and God hears you, and he cares. And he gives you some incredible promises in his word, promises that let you know that if you will draw near to him, God will draw near to you, and he will deal kindly with you. He always deals kindly with desperate people. Keep reading with me. I want you to see how Rachel responds to God's kindness toward her sister. Look at chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, here is my servant Billah. 
Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, which means something like vindication. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali, which simply means something like victorious. And so when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad, which means fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher, and Asher simply means happy. All right, so what we see here in this passage is dysfunction at its fine. Like, are you picking up on this yet? Oh, Jerry Springer mentioned earlier, are you getting why I said that? If not, don't worry, I'll unpack it and make it very clear, all right? So here we see Rachel becoming very, very jealous of her sister. I mean, if we're keeping score, it is four to nil, right? I mean, four kids to none. (laughs) And so Rachel sees this. She is desperate to have what her sister has, and she runs to her husband, and she says, give me kids or I'm going to die. little dramatic, but remember, she's desperate, so Jacob, he gets angry. I mean, he's hot. And he says back to his wife, and my God, like, do I play God? Do I decide who gets to have kids and don't have kids? And Rachel concludes, no, you're not, so I'll play God. And Rachel does what Sarah, the wife of Abraham, did back in Genesis 16. Okay, she takes this situation into her own hands, and she runs to her husband, and she says, I have a great plan. I'm going to give you my servant as your third wife. And you're going to sleep with her, and you're going to get, me pre- get her pregnant, and I'm going to have kids by her, which, by the way, was completely acceptable under the law. See, there was a law in this culture that a barren woman could give her servant to her husband and that he could impregnate her so that she could have kids and he could have heirs. But I want to make the same point that I made when we were studying Genesis 16, and it's this. What culture often accepts, God rejects. What culture often accepts, God rejects. This is so important for us to to really understand, especially in light of the culture we're living in today. You see, what we cannot do as followers of Jesus Christ is base our acceptance of moral values and moral principles off of what culture says is right and true. Because oftentimes what culture says is right and true, it completely contradicts what God says is right and true. And this was the case for Rachel, okay? She was in a culture that said to her, it's completely fine for you to take this situation into your own hands. Rachel, it's completely fine for you to play God over life. You know what? If you want to give your husband away to another woman so that he can marry her and sleep with her, that is completely your decision to make. But the reality was none of it was okay. None of it. I mean, God made Jacob a promise to give him descendants, and he didn't need Rachel's help coming through on that promise. But in addition, when you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and you study God's design for marriage, you find that his design for marriage is very, very simple. It's been this way since the beginning of time. One man plus one woman for life. And so listen, Jacob had no business marrying another woman, yet Rachel conveniently ignores that. 
And this very desperate woman does a very desperate thing and she gives her servant to her husband and dummy Jacob does what dummy Abraham did. Instead of being a man and stepping up and being a spiritual leader in his family and saying to his wife, we're not doing that. Okay, God made us a promise and we're going to trust him to come through on that promise. We're not going to do this our own way. Jacob just decides, I'd love to sleep with your servant. And so he does and he gets her pregnant twice. She has two sons, and, and after those sons are born, Rachel names them very specific names, Dan and Naphtali, to suggest, okay, God's finally vindicating me. God's working on my behalf, and, and he's giving me victory over my sister. But that's not what God was doing at all. Right? God was not aiding Rachel in her sin. God was being gracious to her in spite of her sin. And eventually Leah takes notice of this and and she responds. And she doesn't respond with continued praise, by the way. Like, oh God, thank you for being so kind to my sister. This is fantastic. Now she has a couple of kids of her own. Uh, No, Leah responds with, oh no, she's catching up. It's 4-2 now and I can't let her beat me. (laughs) And so Leah gives her servant to Jacob as his fourth wife. You know, she just decides if I'm done bearing kids, like if I can't make that happen anymore, then she's going to bear kids for me. And again, Jacob goes, yeah, four sounds great. Nice even number. Guess I'll sleep with her. And she has two more sons, Gad and Asher. And Leah names them what she names them to say to her sister, honey, you just need to stop trying. Okay, it's obvious that I am God's favorite. Look at the good fortune he has shown me. It is 6-2 now. Um, Even women who don't know me, they're going to call me happy and blessed because of what God is doing in my world. Yet instead of giving up, our girl Rachel keeps the competition alive. Look at verse 14. Really interesting part of the story. It says, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But he said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And so she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And so she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Dina, she's going to show up a little bit later in the book of Genesis, okay? So what we see here is Reuben... Leah's oldest son going out into the field, and he finds mandrakes. Okay, mandrakes were these small fruit that were believed to uh, stir up sexual desire and help barren women conceive children. In fact, the common name for mandrakes in this culture was love apples. Don't you love that? And so Rachel, here's the plan in her mind. She's just thinking, if I can get some of those... You know, I can get my husband worked up, I can fertilize my body, and I can start to have some kids of my own. And so she goes to her sister Leah, and I imagine at this point she's being really friendly and really kind, and she says, hey sis, can I get some of those those love apples that your boy brought in? And Leah's on to her at this point, I think. You see it in her response. She goes, okay, you, you took my husband, and now you want some of the mandrakes. Like, I know what you're up to, I know what you're trying to do. 
Well, apparently Rachel ran the family intimacy calendar because she gets it out and checks. Okay, you know what? Jacob's not scheduled to sleep with any of his four wives tonight. And so if you'll go ahead and give me some of those mandrakes, I can pencil you in and you can have him all to your lonesome, right? And Leah agrees. Okay, take the love apples. Get out of here. Sounds like a deal. And so Jacob comes in from the field later that day and Leah says to him, hey, you're mine tonight. I bought you. Don't worry about it. I'll explain later, but we're doing this. And so Jacob sleeps with Leah and we start to see Rachel's plan backfiring in her face. Like Leah doesn't just get pregnant again. She gets pregnant three more times. And Rachel, hear me, Rachel remains barren for three more years. And it's at the end of those three years that she finally gives up. She finally stops trying to compete with her sister and in desperation, she surrenders to God. And look at what God does for her. Verse 22, love this language. Then God remembered Rachel. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And so here's the implication of verse 22. At some point over the course of those three years, Rachel decided, I'm going to stop doing this my way. And she began to call upon the Lord, right? The verse says that the Lord listened to her, which means she was talking to him. And I just imagine that the conversation went something like this. God, I'm dumb. Really great prayer that I would encourage us to pray at times, right? We just need to acknowledge that. God, I'm dumb. Here I am. I've wasted all these years trying to pursue satisfaction on my own apart from you, and it hasn't worked. God, I'm broken, and I am more desperate than I've ever been in life, and so I'm finally throwing myself on your grace and mercy, and God, I just want to ask you, would you do for me what I cannot do for myself, and let me have a kid? And God says, yep, absolutely, I'd I'd love to do that for you. Um, Now that you are done trying to do this on your own apart from me, I would love to bless you in that way. And that's what God does. He remembers her, he opens her womb, and she has a son that she names Joseph. Now, that name Joseph seems to have a double meaning here, okay? Uh, The first thing that she says is the Lord has taken away or removed my reproach or disgrace. In this culture, it was a disgraceful thing to be a barren woman. If you couldn't have kids, people didn't feel sorry for you. They looked down upon you. They treated you as if you were lesser than as a woman, And so Rachel's just realizing because of what God has done for me, he has taken all that away. But then in addition, she says in naming him Joseph, may the Lord add to me another son. So there's another meaning to this. And God would later do that through the son Benjamin. We'll see that later in the book of Genesis. Rachel gives birth to a second son, Benjamin. And unfortunately, she actually dies in the process of birthing him. But what we learn from this part of the story, and and this is really the climax of this story, What we learn, it's the big idea of the text and passage, and it's this, that God satisfies us most when we're most desperate for him. That God satisfies us most when we're most desperate for him. And please hear me, that is not to say that if you become desperate for God, God will just give you whatever you want. He doesn't always do that, okay? Um, God is not a God who always gives us whatever we want, but he is a God who gives us all of who he is when we grow desperate for him. All I'm trying to say with this point is simply this, that in our moments of greatest desperation, 
That's typically when God shows up in the greatest ways and he goes to work in our lives. So let me go back to the question that I started with, all right? And again, be honest. What in life are you most desperate for? What are you most desperate for? What is that thing that you are currently seeking over and above all else? Here's my bet. And I'm so confident of this, I would put money on it. Okay, here's my bet. I bet if your answer isn't God, you're not satisfied. And the reason is really, really simple. It's because the God of the universe has created you for himself to find satisfaction in him and him alone. It's like the great theologian Augustine once said that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. You see, God designed you and he built you in a way that nothing else outside of him can satisfy you. Like true satisfaction is found in God and in him alone. Think about it like this, okay? Uh, The earth, the planet that we're currently living on, it orbits around what? The sun. Well, let's just say that the earth decided to go off the rails one day and said, you know what, I'm done with the sun. I mean, I know that the sun is keeping everything alive and it's helping uh, everything on earth to function in the way it's meant to function, but you know, I'm going to give a different planet a shot here. I know stars not, our sun's not a planet, it's a star, so I get it, okay. But let's just say the earth decides Venus. Venus has always looked really great to me. Let me try Venus. <laughs> and so the earth goes off the rails and it starts orbiting around Venus. What happens to things here on the earth? It dies quickly, right? Things get thrown into chaos, disorder, and life slowly but surely fades away. And it's not because Venus is a bad planet. It's just that Venus wasn't designed to do for the earth what the sun was designed to do. Are you tracking with me? Listen, the same is true when it comes to you and God. Okay, when you decide to orbit your life around lesser things in his place, money, power, success, pleasure, admiration, comfort, whatever it may be, What happens is that you throw your life into chaos, you throw your life into disorder, and you never experience true satisfaction. And it's not because any of those things are bad things. Like they're not. None of those things are bad things in and of themselves. It's just that those things were not created or designed to do for you what only God can do. True satisfaction is found in Him alone. And so in light of that, I would say to you today, there has to come a point for all of us when we do what Rachel did and we stop pursuing satisfaction apart from God and we become desperate for God. But we stop centering our lives on temporary things that cannot provide lasting joy and contentment and we center our lives on the great God of the universe in recognition, listen, that we are weak, needy, dependent, desperate people who cannot know satisfaction apart from him. See, it's so important for you to know today, and you might want to write this down if you're taking notes. It's important for you to know that desperation is a deliberate decision. Desperation is a deliberate decision. Nobody drifts into desperation for God by chance, right? It doesn't happen by accident. It's not like you're going to wake up on Thursday of this week and go, oh my gosh, I, I feel so desperate today. It's not how it works Okay, desperation is a choice, and I was reminded of this choice just this past week as I was preparing for today. Uh, I spent a little bit of time reading Psalm 63, this psalm of desperation written by King David during one of the darkest seasons of his life. 
There are two different occasions in David's life where he had men trying to hunt him down to kill him. On one occasion, it was King Saul, the king before him. On the second occasion, it was his own son, Absalom. I cannot imagine. And so it's believed that David wrote Psalm 63 during one of those really, really dark seasons. And he says stuff like this, I will seek the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will bless the Lord. I will lift my hands. I will sing for joy. My soul will be satisfied in him. David was a man who made a premeditated decision to be desperate for God even in the midst of desperate circumstances. And if there's one thing, just one thing I would challenge you today, it's that. Choose to be desperate for God and choose it before God chooses it for you. Okay, again, you need to be aware of this. There are times if you refuse to be desperate, like I'm not going to go down that road. There are times when God, out of his great love for you, will do what he did for Rachel and he will use something in your life to bring you to the end of yourself and he will force desperation upon you. <laughs> he will help you somehow, some way to see just how weak and needy you truly are. And it's not because God's trying to crush you, it's because God is trying to satisfy you. But God cannot satisfy you until you become desperate for him. You were built for that. And so again, I would just tell you, instead of waiting around on God to do it for you, just choose desperation willingly. Be that person that gets out of bed and decides, no matter how good life is, no matter how bad it is, I'm going to be desperate. No matter how much I have or how little I have, I'm going to be desperate. I'm going to seek him and praise him and bless him and honor him. I'm going to lift my hands and sing for joy and my soul will be satisfied in him alone because I know nothing else in creation will satisfy me like him. And so what I want us to do simply today uh, as we close is just invite us to do that. Is to choose to be desperate today. You see, this is a daily decision. I'll mention this quickly and then we'll pray. Desperation, it's not that you're going to decide this today and then you'll be desperate for the rest of your life, okay? Um, you have to decide to be desperate today and then tomorrow you've got to get out of bed and choose it again. And Tuesday you've got to get up and you have to decide to be desperate again. And Wednesday it's just more of the same. Reminds me of what Jesus said about discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a decision you're going to have to make every day for the rest of your life. And so we're going to start today, all right? So all over the room, I just want to invite us to bow our heads, to close our eyes. Our prayer team's going to come. And I wanted to leave some extra time today for us to pray about this. And as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want to invite you if you need to take on a different prayer posture right now, you do it. Like if you need to Open your hands up in your lap, just almost as a symbol of releasing your life to the Lord. You can do that. If you feel like you need to take a knee and just bow in the presence of God, you can do it at your seat. Or if you want to come down here to the front of this room and you just want to use it as an altar before the Lord, you can just come and bow. You can just come right now. Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. If that's what you feel led to do, you can do it. If you feel like you just need to get on your face, do it. I don't care. Just lay out in the aisle if you need to. Just don't distract anybody else around you. But if you want to take on a different prayer posture, I want to invite you to just do it now. And just begin to acknowledge to God how weak and needy and desperate you truly are. Just tell him. 
God, I see it. I, I know. I'm desperate for you, God. Apart from you, I'm nothing. Apart from you, I have nothing. Just lift your heart to him. Tell him. Tell him what you know to be true about yourself. As you pray, just if this is true of you, you can say this to God. Just tell him, God, I'm choosing to be desperate today. Just voice that to him. God, I am throwing my life at you upon your grace and your mercy. And today, God, I'm choosing to be desperate. encourage you to keep praying if you need to keep praying just you can tune me out unless you need to hear what I'm about to say but listen I I would imagine that there are probably people in this room right now who have walked in feeling very very desperate because you don't know this God that we've talked about today like you've been living your life apart from him up until this point maybe you've never even heard that There's a God who loves you and he created you for himself to walk in relationship with him. And that's where true joy and true satisfaction is found. I just want to say to you, if that's you, if you're the person who's shown up today and you need hope and you need joy and you need peace and you need your life to change in some way, the God who created you loves you and he gave up the life of his own son to pay for all the times you would sin against him, all the times you would fail him because he wants to know you. He wants you to be a son or daughter in his family. And so if you need to come into a relationship with that God today to experience what only he can offer you, I want to help you do that right now just wherever you're seated in faith. You can just say something like this to God. Just tell him, God, I'm desperate for you. And I know that my sin is keeping me from you. But I believe that Jesus laid down his life to pay for my sins. That he rose from the dead to give me new life. And God, I need that life. That life with you. Because I know it's the only life that satisfies. And so God, would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. God, take hold of my life today. I'm giving myself to you. I say yes to Jesus. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed all across the room, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor if you prayed that with me. Just wherever you're seated, floor or the balcony, if you prayed that with me, would you mind lifting a hand to just let us know you did that? You can just throw it up real high. Our prayer team has a resource they want to come and put in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Just keep it up real high. Thank you so much. Keep it up real high. If we haven't gotten to you, just throw it up or we can see it in the floor, on the balcony. James, that's me putting my faith in Christ today. 
God, we thank you for loving us so deeply, for giving the life of your son so that we could be restored to you, so that we could be satisfied in you. And Father, our prayer today is that you would give us everything that we need on a daily basis to choose desperation, to walk in complete dependency upon you, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, because we know that that's the only way we'll know joy and contentment in life. And so, Father, would you be with us, walk with us, empower us. God, we need you, and we know it. And we pray all this in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.